Hey guys, welcome to a bonus episode of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. The reason I say bonus is this is a weekly podcast. That's just the way it usually goes. Yeah, we take some weeks off here and there when life intervenes. But um, this week, uh, second episode for you guys, uh, because we just couldn't stop the the amazing bookings from happening organically. It's Booking is kind of a... a a strange beast you know often i'm i'm simultaneously trying to get you know half a dozen different people at once and it sort of usually just sort of works out where the schedule somehow organically works out where where it makes sense to, to plot people um the way this worked out jack black ran in the previous episode by now you've enjoyed that you've loved that you've fallen in love with jack black all over again if not you can go back and listen after this i won't hold it against you um and next week we have our usual uh monday guest is uh is a time sensitive one i won't say who it is because you know, we like to keep things exciting interesting unpredictable but it's another good one um but then this guy landed in my lap and i uh, he's so high on my list in terms of people I've always wanted to talk to for an extended period of time. Uh, the guest today is the amazing director, George Miller, who, if you are a movie fan, if you consume pop culture on the regular, uh, you hear the deafening cries uh, of exultation <laughs> about Mad Max Fury Road, uh, which is now out in theaters. Um, this is an amazing movie. I, 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 I'm not alone in this. I think this is a movie that will uh, go down as one of the best of this year, and frankly, one of the best uh, in in many recent years. Um, certainly within the genre of action, it is pushing the envelope. It is um, keeping things fresh in a genre where it really feels oftentimes tired and hackneyed. Um, George Miller is the director of all of the Mad Max films. He actually co-directed Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. There's a fun fact for you. But he is certainly the mastermind behind all of these films. And it's been it's been 30 years since there's been a Mad Max film. Um, I want to talk briefly about sort of um, my own relationship with this franchise because this is, like, if you're listening to this and if you're going to listen to the next 45, 50 minutes, um, you're probably vaguely aware interested in george miller's work and mad max's work and the, the work, world of mad max so hopefully this won't feel like too much of a tangent but um i, I feel like it's worth noting you know we the place that that this franchise has had in my own life has been an important one um I, for instance i don't i didn't i don't think i mentioned this to george probably because this is doesn't reflect favorably on on my uh the taste of my family members but um one of my earliest film-going memories was as a six-year-old going to see The Road Warrior uh, with my brother and my grandfather and being basically pulled out of the theater after about 15 minutes of that film when my grandfather uh, realized this was not for him. And maybe not for me. I mean, admittedly, The Road Warrior is probably not appropriate for any six-year-old, let alone seven-year-old, eight-year-old. I don't know what the appropriate age is, but The Road Warrior is intense stuff. Um, so that was my first interaction. And then, of course, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, released in 85, um, really hit me in a sweet spot then. Um, 
it just in terms of creating a bizarre world uh, that really um, laid a deep imprint on young Josh Horowitz's psyche. Um, it's a very unusual franchise in that extremely creator driven. This is not a studio constructed uh, franchise. This is not from, you know, there's no sense in any of these four films now of a, uh, a committee of, uh, of people touching this. This is one man's singular vision, George Miller, um, and, and working with, especially in, in Fury Road with the top artisans in, in his field. Uh, the film features amazing performances it features insane stunt work. Um, there's going to be talk about stunt this, this stunt work all year long. There's already been a little bit of talk about adding a category for stunts. This is something that Tom Hardy himself said to me just a few weeks back when I spoke to him that there should be that acknowledgement. Um, it's uh, it's a really special film, and I would suggest though we don't really get into like heavy spoiler territory. The best way to probably enjoy this conversation check out. Mad Max Fury Road this weekend or whenever, then come back and listen to this conversation. Um, that would be that would be my recommendation. Just because um, if you're like me, after seeing the movie, I wanted to talk more about it with people that had seen it. I wanted to read up about it. I went back and watched the first three films again. Um, I just wanted to kind of live in that world for a little bit more and sort of soak up um, the mad genius of George Miller, who is a fascinating director. We talk a little bit about his other, other work in this too, but if you don't know, this is a guy, he's, first of all, he's 70 years old, which is crazy. I mean, between him and Scorsese, these are guys that are not showing any signs of playing it safe, uh, of retreating um, to, you know, I mean, they're, they're doing their most vital work, uh, arguably, ever at this age, which is astonishing and inspiring. Um, but George's filmography is a testament to the kind of uh, interesting, um, unusual filmmaker that he is. The Babe films, the Happy Feet films, um, which is of Eastwick, which is a, a great, fun film. Uh, Lorenzo's Oil, which probably most of you haven't seen, but is definitely worth uh, checking out for the great performances of Nolte and, and Susan Sarandon. Um, this, if you can't tell from the beginning of the conversation, I was kind of in awe of George Miller. I talked to him once before in San Diego at Comic-Con a few months back. Um, but, uh, you know, I tried to keep the gushing to a minimum, but in this case it felt warranted because if you can't tell by now, I'm in love with this movie. Um, so I guess without any further ado, here is my conversation um, with the genius uh, that is George Miller. He stopped by my office, and uh, this was a real treat, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Here you go. It's, it, was, it was such a treat to, to meet you for the first time in San Diego at Comic-Con. You, um, you know, there are some filmmakers that you... you grow up admiring and you get to a position like the one I have and then you get a chance to really kind of just, I don't know, exchange ideas and, and, and pester them with all the questions you've always had and you're definitely high on the list. So it's, oh. it's, it's a thrill. Oh, thank um, you so much. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on the film. This is like, I, I have to say, I'm gonna, there's going to be some gushing here because I've been, I spent the weekend watching the original trilogy after oh. having seen this film twice in a week. Oh, um, wow. And it's, it's, it's really stuck with me like few films have in, in a while. And, and just as rewarding, I should say, the second time around. It's, oh, thank you. That's, that's, you know, with, 
One of the ways I measure a film is just how long it follows you out of the cinema. Yeah, I want to just I want to like soak in this world. So the next like forty five minutes are just another opportunity for me to just like bask in Mad Max's world for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) So is this something that like I know you've talked a bit about this coming back around a while ago, about fifteen years ago? Did it come out of nowhere? Does does Max kind of come into your life? at various points, or was it dormant for a while in terms of not thinking about very, it? Very, very dormant. I mean, I, 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 they do, they're, 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 they're like imaginary friends, every story you work on. I mean, they do invade your sleep and your daydreams and so on, yeah. uh, and that's the nature of what we all do. That happens to everybody. Yeah. And But I never intended to make a, a second Mad Max, let alone a fourth, yeah. and then this idea pops in your mind and you say, oh, that's Mad Max, and then you immediately push it away and then you it comes back and then becomes more insistent and it grows and then you start to get excited by what the potentials of it and uh, so uh, and one day you find yourself saying to your colleagues, I, I think, we will be making another Mad Max movie. I just didn't realize it would take so long to make it. <laughs> well, I'm curious because one of the joys of this film, uh, among many, is that it, it feels in some ways, it feels certainly modern and feels like it works in 2015, but it also feels anachronistic in some ways in that, um, you know, you know as well as I do, most films nowadays over-explain everything and the backstory of everyone. And, and so much is implied here, so much is, is to be intuited from the audience, um, not much dialogue, and yet great characterizations, and you do feel more connected with these characters than a film that has a hundred times the dialogue. I'm just curious, like, your relationship with the studio, frankly, where it takes balls for Warner Brothers, I would think, to like put their trust in you and to say, like, contrary to what's out there, yeah, I'll let you kind of make this very counter to what the culture is demanding film. Was there any kind of give and take with the studio in terms of what, how much to explain and that sort of a thing? There, were, there wasn't much because they got when they got the, the the screenplay. It was an atypical screenplay. It was an illustrated screenplay because its first iteration was a storyboard, three thousand five hundred right. panels. Uh, we'd written out the basic plotting, but we it, that's the first version. And then then what they got was a kind of illustrated screenplay with right. the dialogue written in and more typical sort of description, but also p- pictures, you know, cliche, but they tell a thousand words. Yeah. It's much, much easier for the cast and crew to be able to see where they were in space through a drawing rather than trying to describe it. So from the get-go, they understood what they were getting. Yeah. And um, and very early on, there were people within the studio who said, oh, th- this is this is – there's something different, uh, unique, uh, uniquely familiar, let's say, about the movie, and that that's that sort of stayed through it. The only things we got, I, I like test screenings, providing you have final cut. Right. It, it, and you did a very, final very cut used. on this? Yeah. yeah. We, I was lucky enough with my first movie, the first Mad Max, to be successful, so I've always had final cut. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. So, um, and anyway, the, the, the point being that... Uh, that the only time that anything like that came up was about clarity. Okay. And and really, because of so much noise in shooting the movie, there was always vehicles and stuff. The dialogue wasn't very clear. Uh, it was impossible for Ben Osmo, the sound recordist, to actually 
get get good dialogue. So later, when we were able to replace that with looping, uh, things became clearer, and so we were able to keep it at pretty well a minimum. Plus, you know, in a way, I think of this these action movies uh, and this one in particular as as a silent movie with yeah. sound and music. And you know, my favorite uh, my favorite dictum from. Albert Hitchcock, who knew more about film language than anyone else, was I try to make movies where they don't have to read the subtitles in Japan. Right. It's, it's <laughs> visual music. Yeah. It's visual music. And audiences have seen so many of these things. I mean, they've watched them in the Westerns. They've seen them in the in the video games. They've seen these sorts of allegorical story about, you know, it, it, it's like a Western on wheels. So they've seen this so often yeah. that they're – they can bring so much to the story and and have the experience. So I hope that explains you. It does. It yeah. does. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so I, I think you answered this question that I'm going to ask. But I, I, again, the, the stereotypical evil studio bosses in my head would seem to demand, for instance, like there's no romance. There's no kiss between, for instance, Furiosa and Max. Was that ever something that were like? Never. Never. Because it was clear from the story they had no time. (laughs) I mean, things are moving so fast. They're they're in extremis. They don't have time to breathe. It it happens over three days, and they have that one night where they can actually talk. Right. And these are two characters, Max and Furiosa, you know, Tom and and Charlize, who uh, tried, are trying to kill each other when they first meet yeah. because their, their survival depends on one killing the other virtually. Well, and, and, we, and I should know, we are going to get into some spoiler uh, territory here, but, like, for instance, one of the sequences talking about that relationship, I, I, almost like an emotional high point for me in the film, and it's even the music kind of shifts, Junkie XL's score it shifts in, in a big way, is, is sort of this, what I would call, like, a team-up scene where they finally kind of, like... Um, are are helping each other. Was that something that, I mean, is that something that, that you give directive on the music side? Like, okay, this is this is a moment where the emotion should shift, where we where where the nature of the relationship is shifting, and we need to reflect that. Or is that sort of intuited from what you've shot? Both. I mean, we talk a lot. I think the great composers are also people who have a strong instinct for drama, and but we talk. We dig down deep into the drama. What's happening yeah. in, in terms of what's happening, the dynamics between the characters, and then we're looking for a, a, a musical color, a way to express that. And that was clearly simple strings, not big orchestra, just right. simple cellos and violins. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, and that just came out of working. I, I mean, Tom Holkenberg, Junkie XL wrote the big, big action scores first and we left to the very last the more intimate scenes. But gotcha. that's that just comes from a really, uh, you know, I- I- intimate relationship between uh, a director who is totally unmusical and doesn't really understand how to make beautiful music, even though I have the instinct for it, right. and someone who's able to explain almost in a mathematical way about why certain sounds and harmonies and tempos give us certain feelings, and and we were able to sort of come and and, and meet, you know, meet, meet meet there. The um, it's interesting because the, the the storied past of this project is something that, that again we alluded to a little bit, but I, I do want to get into. Obviously, um, you've talked about this before, way back when this was this was Mel was still going to be the guy. Yeah, there was talk also, and I'm I'm curious about this. Heath Ledger was Heath up for 
replacing Mel as Max, or was he Nux, or what was what no, was no, his? He was he was for replacing Mel okay. after it fell apart in two thousand and one, and then I took close to four years to do ha- Happy uh, Feet, the first Happy Feet. You know, a good half a decade had passed, yeah. and Mel hit the turbulence in his life, and it's not. An older warrior, it's meant to be the same character repeated over time, much like those James Bond characters. Sure. They're 50 years old. It's not a continuous story. <clears throat> and um, and then uh, – but Heath, every time he'd come through Sydney, uh, he'd call in and we, we'd have really these, these long talks and, uh, and, and, you know, we talked about Max and – and but 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 it, it wasn't you know I wasn't even sure if it was going to get up again yeah and then and then you know that that awful tragedy that he was lost to the yeah. world happened and and but he had that same quality that Mel had when he walked in the door thirty years before a kind of that male nervous energy very lovable on the one hand but also a mystery yeah and then. The only other time I felt it was with Tom Hardy. He walked in the door. They were all three of them, uh, very skilled actors, and 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 very uh, very interested in exploring what we do in, yeah. in terms of storytelling on film. And Tom had that 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 feeling. So yeah, what struck me when I was watching the the, the original three films and I was reading up, it's just how young Mel was. Also, despite yeah. playing like he even in Thunderdome. Which uh, I think he must have been twenty eight, twenty nine, and yeah. yet he is. You, I mean, you say from the get go, especially I think between Mad Max and Road Warrior. By Road Warrior, you feel a lived in life, even though he's yeah. only twenty five, twenty six. I think that. he's even less. Uh, he was twenty one on the first Mad Max, and he still had the, that sort of a little puppy, right. teenage quality. But that uh, was but gone was a, by Road Warrior. He, but Road Warrior, he was a man. He was only twenty four. I mean, it was uh, it was it was quite. Rem- it was quite remarkable in that way. Tom Hardy was six weeks old when we shot the first Mad Max, and and and, and Tom's in in his thirties now. But yeah, but Melton was very manly yeah. uh, uh, always, and um, I had the at the premiere in Los Angeles. I had the extraordinary experience of sitting next to Mel right. on one side and Tom just behind me. Amazing. And uh, What did he say to you afterwards? Or Well, during the movie, you know, he'd just give me a little nudge on the <laughs> thing and I could tell, uh, you know, he was just laughing and, you know, he, 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 uh, laughing during the movie and you really yeah. get caught up in it. And he was like a one-man audience to me and <laughs> it was really good. And, you know, he's, he's a... You know, he, for all his troubles, he's also a wonderful, generous person, very, very generous, and and a great filmmaker. Absolutely. I mean, I remember, I remember, it was Mad Max Two uh, that he would never go to the trailer. He would just sit around on set. He wouldn't. He'd, he'd just sit around and watch. Yeah. And then I said to him. One day, I said, you're going to direct one day. And he said, uh, it'll be interesting. And I'll remember. And then, of course, you see the, the work that he's done. Yeah, he's a thrill. And it, it's, been, it's been tough for all of us that, like, you know, I mean, I, I grew up with his films. And I still, and I can't, and I do separate what, hap- what the stuff he's been through. And I, and I hope he comes out on it and has come out on it on the other side yeah. and, and cont- continues to make great work. Because he's just such a vital performer and filmmaker, as you say. And we shouldn't have to lose someone like that. Yeah. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about. So did you go? Did you go back to the first? Did you watch the first three films either when you were putting this together at any points? Did you find? Is it just so ingrained you don't need to? No, no, I didn't. It's amazing. You know, once I finish a film, uh, after seeing it with an audience about three or four times, I never go back. And what was the mo- one of one of the extraordinary, most extraordinary experiences I've had in, in recent life was to go to South by Southwest right. and watch a newly minted print of Road Warrior with an audience fully through for the first time in 32 years. And it was... A kind of time travel. It was very affecting because I was surprised just how much of the movie held up after that time. Yeah. <clears throat> I've looked at little bits of the film, uh, of, 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 of all the films, but, you know, once you're done, you're done. Yeah. And, 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 um, and uh, so, and it's so much in my head. And I didn't want to go refer. It's not a remake. It's exactly. not anything like that. I just, it's it's a, a kind of revisiting or amplification or re-exploring. It's like reinventing your hometown. You know, you have it in your imagination, and yeah. you you kind of reinvent it in your mind. You know, in, in terms of structure, though, it's probably it, this one is closest to Road Warrior in terms yes, of definitely. the relentless yes. pace of it. Yes, I, I was curious about that too. Like in terms of pacing, and I remember you first mentioned this to me when I talked to you in San Diego about this being one essentially one long chase, which blew my head off when I heard that. And it it pretty much is indeed that. And what I noticed in watching it a couple times is is you it is a relentless chase yet almost like every thirty minutes or something there it feels like there's a there's a moment there's a, you give some breaths and is that something that you were conscious of and are conscious of because the way audiences just receive films today is different than thirty years ago just yeah. in terms of what they're used to yeah. how aware were you of that and, and and talk to me sort of like how that might have affected the structural and pacing of this one well. You've got to remember, cinema language is an acquired language that's not too much more than a century old. And we can read cinema, film language, before we can read the, the written word, right? even as a child. And it's evolving. It's evolving through just moving image uh, endlessly. We're, we're, we're picking up more inferences. We, we, we're speed reading movies now. Yeah. Um, Road Warrior had 1,200 uh, 1, shots in it. Uh, this one has 2,700. The average so-called blockbuster movie, uh, action movie, has between two and 3,000 shots in it. Someone told me the other day the first J- Jurassic Park had something like 950 shots in it Amazing. and 65 digital shots in it. So we're definitely getting faster and, and speed And you'll get a Michael movie. Bay film today. I can only imagine it's probably thousands and thousands. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So – and, and and so we're definitely able to sort of to get them read them much more quickly, and 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 the language is is shorthanded, uh, and, and and so that was an interesting thing to sort of deal with. <coughs> Excuse me, and and then of course you need it's like the, the the other thing is it's kind of visual music. Yeah. Uh, it's it, endlessly you, you you're using the analogy to music. It's like little pieces of time, like notes of music. There's got to be a causal relationship between one shot and the other. Right. Just there is a causal relationship between the harmonies and the st- structure of 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 music uh, with with. 
tempos and so on. So part of the tempo is is a quickening pace, reaching a crescendo, and then quietening down. You have to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes head-banging uh, white noise after a while. So the same visually. Yeah. And repetition, you know, Margaret Sixel, who cut the movie, uh, who also happens to be my <laughs> wife, uh, she's got a low boredom threshold and, and also – Really dislikes repetition, and but also has a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a demands that there's be be some sort of strong causal connection spatially or thematically, yeah. or in some way between one shot and the next. Yeah. So you bring all that to bear, and you you hope that the end result, uh, you know, does it for you know it holds up as a piece of visual music. It's. You know, you know, Bernard Herrmann used a great term. He said, cinema is a mosaic art. It's made up of all the little pieces somehow making a whole. Yeah. And you really don't know until you get all the elements together how the thing's going to play. One element that I, I want to mention, again, so many things I love in this film, but um, the return of, a, of an actor, that another actor that you use in the original Mad Max is your villain here. Um, and just visually in terms of presence, um, a remarkable creation. Can you talk about sort of where that figure came from? Morton Joe, right? Morton Joe. Yeah. yeah. What, what was uh, what's where did the look come from? Which is just like <laughs> it's just. Well, first of all, um, Hughie's burnt. I owe a lot to on the first Mad Max because I knew nothing about acting. He was from the Royal Shakespeare Company. He'd done a a, a, a very celebrated production of uh, of Midsummer Night's Dream, which toured the world. With, which Peter Brook uh, put together. And he ended up in Australia with a commune of actors and they formed the biker gang. Yeah. And he he sort of so played that out. It wasn't quite method. It was very playful, but they drove around the city as a biker gang for the entire duration of, of the shoot. And he really gave a glue to that film for, 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 for the other actors to work with. So... We killed him off in the first film and never had the opportunity to work with him again. So to do that again with the war boys and so on and create this sort of this patriarchal figure who, yeah. who sits above the dominance hierarchy and controls all the resources of the wasteland and is now kind of trying to create a sort of a cultish, semi-religious sense about himself so he can manipulate everybody. It was very, very... It needed someone as powerful as he. And he... He'd walk on the set and he'd insist that everybody uh, call him Immortal or, <laughs> and call him Daddy and do the sign of the V8. And this not only included the actors, uh, the war boy actors, but the stunt crew. Right. And many of the crew joined in. <laughs> and, uh, and he just has that as very playful, particularly when you're out there in that desert to have that. And he, it just brings that glue. Yeah. and. And the character is, again, another timeless character in all of history. We see him, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the patriarch basically up, up there. He, he, I mean, he's, the, 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 the costuming of it is, on the one hand, he has that mask, which is, in a sense, giving him, uh, he needs it to, 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 to breathe sure. healthy air. But it also it can't look therapeutic. It has to look formidable. So it's, Mission it's, accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be scary. So you, it, it's like that guitar. It, it's a guitar. It's clearly the equivalent of the bugler 
or the drummer sure. or the bagpipes. But it has to it has to be a logic to it. Yeah. And it it it, it has to look great, it has to be functional, but also has to be a weapon. Sure. Because uh, it's it's a flamethrower. So all the it's, 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 it, as manic as the movie looks in its design, everybody had to sort of have very, very similar ground rules to design it. Right. And one of which is just because it's the wasteland, it doesn't mean that people can't make beautiful things. I mean, no matter how impoverished we are as humankind, we always have an aesthetic. Yeah. Even the Paleolithics had wonderful drawings and cave drawings and so on, and they were extraordinary. Um, so that was one of the big things. It can't look like a junkyard because anything that survived survived was like found objects repurposed, almost like found art. So sure. a steering wheel was much more than a steering wheel and so on. G- going back, did, did Tina Turner go similarly method for her role in Thunderdome? <laughs> what, what are your recollections of working with Tina? Well, Tina is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. I mean, she has, because of her life and, and, and who who she is, uh, had an, just a stature. Uh, she's just somebody who exuded that that power, and it was earned. I, I'm sure it's intrinsic to her. Yeah. So when we, you know, I kept on saying as we were writing with Terry Hayes all that time ago, we just saying, oh, she, uh, she'd be, you know, instead of making it a man, let's make it a woman. It might be more interesting, and it'd be someone like Tina Turner. We kept on saying someone like Tina Turner, and then when we finally <laughs> decided to cast, we said, "Well, let's ask Tina," and she turned out to be wonderful. I'm actually surprised she didn't pursue acting more. And again, in watching it again, I mean, it's it's one of a, a very few performances she's ever given, but yeah. she holds her own. She has a presence, as you say. Oh, and, she has it. Yeah. yeah. Who's uh, uh, whose idea was? And, and how immediately did you know it was brilliant was Master Blaster? Because Master Blaster is one of those, again, add to the pantheon of, of, of characters in this universe that just, when I first encountered, that was like one of the first ones I encountered as a child, and it was immediately like, yeah. that's ingrained forever. Yeah. The, it, it, it comes out of story. If you're in a, an apocalyptic world, the, the essential question you have to ask about everyone, how did they survive? Yeah. Where the rules, basically there's no rule of law. And it's usually the powerful, most powerful uh, and most mobile who will survive. So how would someone survive? And if you had a man who is not very clever, but he's got, a, you know, he's, he's a, 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 you know, a powerful physically, sure. and you had a man who is not powerful physically uh, but has a, a great brain, well, those two would work synergistically or right. symbiotically together. So. So that, that that's how those characters, and then you, um, I think again it was Terry Hayes who came up with the name Master Blaster. <laughs> <laughs> it sticks, it sticks yeah. with you. The, you've you've said that, um, and Tom, I recently talked to him too, mentioned that you have two, at least two other stories. Yes, are, the, are these in similar formats to what you delivered to Warner Brothers in terms of like full on storyboard uh, one, script? W- one is one one is, and and the other. Um, when uh, so I initially did did the first draft, the kind of uh, storyboarded draft uh, with of the film of Fury Road with uh, Brendan McCarthy, and then when it was, came back again, uh, Nico Lathuris is someone I'd worked with a lot, uh, who's, who's a dramaturg and writer, and an, a great was a great actor uh, in the day, uh, back in the day, and he 
we started to really dig down deep into the world and write the backstories for everything, even vehicles. Yeah. And then uh, we, we, we talked about and came up with these other stories and then because I had to go off and work on other stuff, uh, I said, well, don't write it as a screenplay, write it as a, a novella. So he wrote a, a novella uh, uh, on Max and uh, it's, very, it's very strong. So it's something we, you know, we... we, we you know, if if this film does well enough, right. and and uh, I get the appetite to go back into that wasteland, uh, we we could we could do it. And that's separate from also Charlie's mentioned that there's a full on Furiosa. Furiosa story. That's separate. Yeah, yeah. This is a lot. You, yeah. You, this is, this well, it did, we never <laughs> intended to do it. That's it's really strange. You never intended. Yeah. You know, put, you know. My favorite saying of all time is John Lennon: "Life <laughs> is what happens when you're making other plans." Yeah. I know it's way too early to talk specifically about what those storylines are, but I'm just curious, like, can you tease in terms of in form? Are they similar to uh, into this one, i.e. being one long chase? Can you talk in terms of like what you're experimenting no, with? In they're terms different of, in form. Yeah. They're not they're not continuous. Uh, this this one happens over three days. Yeah. One happens over about a year and the other happens over several years. Wow. Yeah. Leaning in one direction or another right now in terms of what could be the... I, the I, I don't know. It's, you know. I've just finished this movie. Yeah, and I know. It's cruel to... I, 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 I keep on saying it's like asking a woman who's just given birth, uh, <laughs> do you want to, when are you going to make another baby? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm just greedy. I just want more. <laughs> and uh, hopefully it won't take 15 more years yeah. of uh, development. Um, but the reception seems to indicate there is an appetite, which is exciting. Yeah. Do you, I mean... In, in looking at your career, and I'm, I'm a fan of all of your, your directing efforts, um, you must take a, a certain pride in terms of the disparate kinds of films that are on that resume. It, it speaks to uh, your many talents, your many interests, but do you, do you categorize Max almost as like its own separate thing? Is that like the, 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 the one you know, thing, if it has to be like, you know, the thing you're remembered for, is it the Max films or do you take, you know what I mean? Uh, no, nothing, nothing at all conscious. I mean, I'm driven, I'm definitely driven by an intense curiosity for cinema and how, it, how almost the cultural anthropology of it, how, what it means, what storytelling is. So I come at it from two angles. What, what does the technology allow us, allow us to do? So when, when I first saw motion capture i thought oh we can make the penguins dance that yeah. was it but the penguin story was the one i really wanted to tell and and i think also it, it just occurred to me not long ago that i made the mad max movies when i didn't have kids right and then when the kids come along you 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 spend a lot of time in the cinema watching family movies. Right. And so your prime, your mind is alert to those stories. So if you read the book about the sheep pig, which became Babe, uh, you're there and you, and you see that, A, it's, it's a classic hero myth and, and that it should be done at CG and you wait for that and so on and so on. And now yeah. they, they go through the happy feats and then the kids are growing up. And you're not watching family <laughs> movies anymore, and right. so you go back to a Mad Max world. You know, <laughs> one, one project that um, it's on the list of like great unrealized projects. I, I know for for many cinephiles is the is the Justice League movie that you were going to do, yeah. which came insanely close. Like yeah. you were all there, like the entire cast was there. We right? were all there. We were up against a deadline with the Writers Guild, and it was the first film that was to get a rebate, a significant rebate in Australia. Uh, 
um, and there was a, there was a, a board which vi- voted um, which voted uh, four to three to deny it. No, <laughs> uh, because it wasn't <laughs> one seen, person basically it, one person a, l- a little bit like the Supreme Court yeah. in Florida, <laughs> and um, and and uh, and. And uh, and really, they hadn't sorted out. They were still bewildered by the definition of the legislation, and it wasn't seen as an Australian content enough. I see. Uh, uh, since then, it's become strong Australian creative. Uh, uh, all the Australian creativity had to be at the top. So a few years later, they're able to make Great Gatsby, which is right. quintessentially American. Well, but when the, the Star Wars Star- film, some of them were shot there, et cetera. This was, this was, was after the Star oh, okay. Wars. This is after Star Wars. Okay. And now... Now, if it was today, you could they would allow yeah. uh, on the rebate, but then we couldn't. We, it you know it dragged right up until the deadline. Oh, the writers' so, strike, yeah. yeah. So, what, can you talk about just in terms of look or tone what that what that film would have been? What your take on because like, it seems much different than what's what's developed in on the DC universe side of things in the Man well, of Steel we recently. were working with 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 great uh, people. The, uh, um, Ken Ralston was doing the visual effects. <coughs> And when a workshop was doing everything else, and Richard Taylor or Sir Richard Taylor uh, were, were doing the costumes and the designs of characters, so they're very, very beautiful. Yeah. And uh, so, um, yeah, but that's again John Lennon. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, one of those. You can be philosophical about that. Was there a time if I talked to you ten or twenty years ago about products that came close or fell apart where you might not have been as philosophical? And it, oh, you learned very early to be philosophical because, yeah. uh, and this applies to every filmmaker. You know, um, we we all have four or five things all cooking along. And see which one breaks when the planets align. You know, I had the great privilege of getting to know Robert Rodriguez, and was there two days ago uh, in Austin. And uh, and it, he was saying the same. He's got several things that he's working on, yeah. uh, and, and 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 suddenly something happens, and all the critical, um, you know, masses yeah. sort of come together, and, and 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 suddenly you find yourself making it real. So. It's not like you, you you sit there and and sort of, you know, you you, you just move on to the yeah. next thing. And 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 same here. Now there's a lot more movies that I've 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 worked on and in my head or or, or have written that I'll ever have time to do. Right. Yeah. I mean. It, it strikes me that like the Max franchise, for instance, is unlike many franchises uh, of the size. It's really creator-driven. It's your baby, obviously, with with some obviously some huge um, help from some some collaborators. But like, would you ever consider letting someone else play in that sandbox, for instance? Yeah, there's a lot of filmmakers I admire, and and if there was someone who could take it in a sense, make it their own, and uh, the, yeah, that's definitely something I would consider. Yeah, I have done quite a bit of producing in the past. Sure. And and particularly in television, and I enjoy it. It's it's um, if the project is, um, it depends on the project. Yeah. And it depends on the person. But yeah, 
And what about playing in other people's sandboxes in terms of have you do you, have you met with like the Marvel and DC and Star no. Wars folks? Like, have you ever have you explored any of those? No, uh, the DC films obviously with Justice League sure. and Warner, and my home studio, as it were, is is Warner Brothers. We've been there for you know well from since the first Mad Max, effectively. Yeah. So it's thirty five years. Yeah. What's what's your appetite for? Um, well, let's talk specifically action filmmaking today. We talked a little bit about the, the accelerated amount of cuts that are in, in action films. Do you feel like? I mean, are you kind of dulled? Have your senses dulled uh, by watching what's what's produced today? Or are you excited if, if by what you're seeing? If it's kind of if it's kind of lazy and formulaic, of course we all um, get, get glaze over when we're watching them. But if it's got some new take, it's pushing the language in some way. Or, or, or just just exactly the analogy of music. You, you know, yeah. someone comes along and does something that really is in command of what they yeah. what they're trying to do, and uh, you, you know, and you hear something new. It's I keep, like the term uniquely familiar. It's still based on what's come before, but somehow has a new slant on it, and it's powerful and yeah. compelling, and and uh, so obviously. Um, yeah, the, the same same with filmmakers, but the filmmakers I tend towards are the very very strong montage guys yeah. or, or girls who are really strong on syntax. What's the last uh, couple that have struck your fancy in terms of? Well, films, I'm or? you know having come out of animations, I'm a big fan of the Pixar's and, yeah. and the DreamWorks, which which you know the great thing you know Polanski said there's only one perfect place for the camera at any given moment in a movie and when you're working digitally in 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 animations particularly where you can experiment you can really modify that camera at yeah. very little cost same performance same everything but you can actually adjust the performance and or the, you can adjust the experience through the camera that's that's a really great exercise yeah. and so when when people do that at the the, the at their best, they're, they're, that's to me sort of the top filmmaking. So I just I just saw the new Pixar Inside Out, which is Pete yeah. Doctor's that yeah. he did to up and to yeah. like that montage. I mean, that's like that sequence early on in that film of like the the couple kind of growing up together is just like transcendent. And oh, oh, yeah, remarkable. Yeah, and and all, all, all those guys. I yeah. mean, they just they just pushed cinema further through through that new digital dispensation and. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that's great to see. We, I mean, it, it, it as I said uh, earlier, it's an evolving language. Yeah. What so? What format or technique or technology are you dying to use that you have not yet had a chance? I mean, I remember there was a, a time where you talked about an anime version, for instance, of yeah, Max. That was that's something that. I, but I wouldn't do. I wouldn't have the skill to do anime. I, I would sort of, you know, certainly have input, but I wouldn't have. You know, the Japanese. Okay. The Japanese. The masters of that. So, yeah. yeah. Any other technologies or any other aspects of, of filmmaking today that weren't available ten or twenty years ago that you are are as just as a as a filmmaker? Well, I'm just Hughes? fascinated by how cameras are getting smaller yeah. and higher resolution. You got GoPro now. I understand is 4K, which is more than we're seeing in, in in the movies today. And I think you know, as the cameras get smaller, you you're going to be able to do stuff. That you would, and and in a sense, cheaper than you would have been able to do in the past. So right. that's really interesting to me. And then on the other side, I guess is like, have they have they been able to shrink the IMAX cameras yet? I mean, I heard they just they're doing like the next Avengers film 
purely in IMAX. In IMAX. Like the entire film. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware that they've shrunk it. I mean, that's massive to be right. able to – the massive cameras. We, we, we were going to shoot this native 3D – and we really made small cameras and we were going to delay the convergence where the eye looks in or out of the screen uh, and in, in, in post yeah. when, when it's the most sensible place to do it. And the cameras were fairly cumbersome. We were able to get them inside the cabin of the war rig where, where we spent uh, the, yeah, the, uh, quite a bit of time. And um, But even they weren't. You know, they were still too big yeah. uh, and we decided against it, uh, particularly if we we only had six of them. We, we had to – they were purpose-built and, and you know, it was a good decision because had we lost two of them, it would have cramped. Our, you know, you can't build one quickly. Right. Whereas <laughs> we ended up shooting with cameras which uh, if you smashed a crash camera, you put them in, in, in jeopardy and, and you'd smash a camera, you could go to the airport in Namibia and buy – Another one for a hundred, well, one thousand five hundred dollars. Oh wow! So yeah, not the big expensive cameras, but uh, so on. So um, it's it, it's cumbersome. And sometimes I think the technology you've got to be whenever there's new technology, you've got to be really careful. It doesn't really. It's not the the tail that wags the dog. Sure, you know. I know the first six months. If you go back and read what happened in Hollywood uh, for the first six months with 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 the advent of sound, yeah. The sound recordist ruled the roost. He told the camera where to go. He told the actors how, where to stand, and he told them how to speak. And then the directors said, "Wait a moment, this is this, this is technology uh, getting out of hand." So they then they uh, you know they they basically stepped back into the, right in, in, well, into it. So you just got to be careful of the technology. That's why I frankly, as sort of as a film geek, like I respect. You know, among the people that I admire most are including you, and I think of someone like James Cameron and Zemeckis, and people that are just constantly throughout their career are curious yeah. and don't, and, and, you know, could certainly make a, you know, two people sitting in a room dynamic and interesting, yeah. but um, you want to keep it interesting for yourself too. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right? Yeah. Um, the last thing, and I know I, I, you've been very generous with, with yeah. your time, but uh, on, on the on working with actor side of things, I mean, looking at the kind of actors you've worked with over your career, like you've worked with some really fascinating and, and, and frankly, sometimes difficult is probably too strong a word, but like, but strong personalities. You think of someone like Nicholson, I think of Nolte on Lorenzo's Oil, you know, Tom is certainly idiosyncratic, Mel, of course. Do you find, like, did, did, did you find that you learned the language of working with actors over the years? Did that something that, that always came naturally? And were you tested by those kind of strong personalities throughout and have to learn sort of how to handle them in the right way? The, well, obviously you learn. You better learn if you do it. But I've got to tell you, uh, Jack Nicholson and Nick Nolte were uh, were, were uh, tremendous privileges. Uh, priv I had tremendous privilege working yeah. with them. They both had learnt a lot by the, from their lives, and were very considered. Uh, I mean, Jack is a sage. Yeah. He taught me going through that movie. He taught me so much about life. That I still apply to life today, and it, and in his case, he is a filmmaker. From the get go, he said, "You're not just getting an actor; you're getting someone who's going to get this movie made." Yeah. He was so true to his word. He would turn up on his off days just to do off camera lines for for the three 
uh, which is right. Susan Michelle and Sher. He was when the stu- we hit some, some flak with the there. studio. Yeah, totally. When we when we hit flak with the studio, he was there, basically running interference for me, uh, coaching me. It was it was one of the most privileged experiences I've ever had in my life. And ditto someone like Nick. I mean, he. he he was just determined to do a great, great job. And, and talk about like fearless performances. I think of those two in particular for Witches of Eastwick and yeah. Lorenzo, yeah. What, what, what Nick was doing with the accent and then, you know, what, what Jack is doing. Like you have to have, you know, confidence in your own, um, yeah. in your director, but also in your own abilities to be able to go for the, it. Like yeah. The, 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 when, when an actor has no fear, then you're it, it, you 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 you're in that lucky position where you're kind of a coach watching a great athlete. Yeah, you're just trying to guide them into experience and you let them run. And so when and and these are actors who have no fear. It's a, yeah. it's it, it just it that is definitely one of the joys. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, uh, so I've so I've, I've for the most part I've really you know they were I would never. These guys, you know, they don't have long careers unless they're really serious about what they do. Yeah, and uh, and and so you just know that that it's it's all about the work. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been very lucky. And you can you can add Tom and, and Charlize, who we haven't mentioned, yeah. but we should. Charlize, just to say. Tom. I mean, Tom is very daring, uh, and you know, God, he told me the other day he's kind of after doing. All the stuff he's doing, going to take on Elton John. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how can he take on Elton John? I mean, play Elton John. Well, yeah, he just, he just played great. Twins in a film, he just The Craze, twins right? In a movie and, and stuff. And Charlize, you know, is just uh, fearless. I yeah. mean, she's fearless. She'll, she'll, she has the, you know, she was an accomplished ballet dancer and she has the skill yeah. of, 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 uh, you know, of that, 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 that discipline yeah. and so on. And, you know, she's the one saying, "I want to shave off my hair." Right. And she, you know, she's a she's a warrior. She wouldn't mess with hair in the desert and the heat. Right. Well, yeah. as I as, as I said before, I mean, purely from a filmmaking standpoint, and as pure cinema as you refer to it, I mean, this this film works, and it's 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 a new standard in action for 2015. I feel, but also like it wouldn't work if without these kind of relationships and the and and the story that you've created here and the performances that they've delivered. It's truly. Truly an awesome feat, um, and it's 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 such a privilege to talk to you about oh, yeah. all of this. Thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, today, it's, it's great. That's, that's, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. And don't don't take fifteen more years of thinking about the next one. Just get to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm selfish I that don't way. Don't have that much time. <laughs> <laughs> thank oh, thank you. you. This was a great interview. So thank much you. fun. Thank yeah. you so much, sir. That's the show, guys. I'm Josh Horowitz. This has been Happy, Sad, Confused. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. Go over to wolfpop.com. Check out all the amazing shows over there. And most importantly, check back in next week for another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Hop. Pop? Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.